Romans chapter 9. We're getting into a very interesting portion of this book, as if this book isn't already interesting enough. It's taking a bit of a turn, but there are, and there are different views of why Paul wrote this <clears throat> and then also included it where he put it. Um, I'll get into that in a minute. But he goes on, and I'm going to back up into verse 37 of Romans 8, just for some context. So I'm going to read to you out of the New American Standard 2020. It says, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God <clears throat> that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my countrymen, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who were Israelites to whom belonged the adoption as sons and daughters, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. So, Father, we ask that you would give us understanding and ears to hear what your spirit would say concerning your word in this particular passage. We thank you, Lord, for your word that is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, and how you use your word to speak to our hearts, to grow us up in our most holy faith. So <clears throat> we pray, Lord, for your spirit to be upon us, that we may hear that which you desire for us to hear this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. I think when as, as I look at this passage, and, we're, we're, uh, and it's, it's a very full passage, there's a lot of theology uh, in this that we're, we're going to start looking at. And, I, and I'm almost wanting to do the heavy lifting on this on Wednesday nights. Uh, not only in Romans 9, but also Romans 9, 10, and 11 uh, as we work our way through this passage. And, and uh, it, it deals with the question of Israel. And what about Israel? And, and there are some who believe that this is a parenthetical section. In other words, it's just kind of thrown in there as a, as a great parenthesis. And that the end of chapter 8 could flow very well into the beginning of chapter 12. And, and while that is true, that is the end of chapter 8 could flow very well into the beginning of chapter 12. I don't see this as a, as a parenthesis at all. Um, we have to consider the first people who read this letter. 
And Paul is writing to a church in Rome that is a mix of both Jews and Gentiles. And it is at a time where there is beginning to be a shift where there are more Gentiles that are coming to the faith and less Jews that are coming to the faith. And, and so the question begs to be asked, if Paul is so emphatic about what he said about the love of God and, and that nothing uh, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, then what about the Jews? They have not received the Messiah. And has God cast them off? What about them? If God is so powerful, if God is so faithful in his promises to humanity, why do so many Jews oppose the gospel? Why did the Jewish nation as an entity, now that's an important distinction, because Paul is going to talk in this section, Romans 9 through 11. Now when I say in this section, I'm talking about these three chapters, okay? So I don't have to keep uh, post-qualifying that. In this section, Paul is talking about the Jewish nation as an entity, but he is also talking at times about the individual Jews that consist of the Jewish nation as an entity. Here, I believe, in the very first part of chapter 9, he's talking about the individuals. But he could also, it could also be understood as he's talking about the nation as well. So if God is so powerful, if God is so faithful, why do so many Jews oppose the gospel? Why is this happening when the prophet Jeremiah declared, and I'm not going to take the time to turn there this morning, but Jeremiah chapter 31, where, where, where God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Why is there this disconnect? And as Paul is writing to believers, and he's telling us that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God, that is in Christ Jesus, and, and I think as he's writing this, I think the very natural flow is now he wants to address that potential argument. Remember I talked about this earlier, that Paul is, is anticipating arguments to what he has written. Therefore, he starts in on some of his, and we saw this really in chapter 7 and chapter 6 to some degree in part of subchapter 8. And he's addressing a, a possible argument that may have, that we don't know because we don't have enough literature really to go back that far and to really realize what was going on in the discourse between the, uh, the, the, the Christians in Rome in the first century. But he's anticipating this argument, if God is so faithful, if God is so powerful, then why have the Jews rejected him? But not only that, as I just said earlier, here he is talking about this truth that nothing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And, and no doubt, he's, as he's sharing this, his heart goes out to his countrymen who do not know the Messiah. 
He's talking about the greatness of God's love, and 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 and, and then he's he's overcome. So to me, this is a very natural flow in this passage. He's overcome, I believe, with with sorrow. He says, "I'm telling you the truth in Christ." It's almost like he's taking an oath. I'm not lying. Well, how many times do you read that in the Bible, huh? But he say, "I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying." My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For me, when I read about nothing separates us from the love of God, in Christ Jesus. And I begin to think about that for a moment. About how great the love of God is. It does not take me too long for my mind to stray toward those who do not know him as Lord and Savior. And to recognize that they do not understand, they have not experienced the love of God that surpasses all understanding. That they do not experience this faithful Hebrew word, I know this isn't Greek, but the Hebrew word hased, which God said, I love you with an everlasting love. The hased, that, that faithful love, that love that pursues, that love this, that does not let go. That love that is always there, even when it's rejected. And they don't know that. And here, here I think Paul, had, with, with, as he's sitting in his computer writing this, okay? And of course, you know that's not true. Uh, there's, there's a saying that's floating around uh, on, in the internet. And the saying is, the problem with the internet is that you never can tell if something is true or not. And it's written by Abraham Lincoln. And uh, I say some of you got it. Most of you got it. Okay. Uh, but anyway, he's, he's here and he's writing. He's being inspired. Remember, this is inspired scripture. And he is interjecting his heart, his soul, into what he's writing here. And he is at a place of sorrow, possibly at a place of tears. He says his grief is unceasing. I think of the prophet Isaiah. Jesus referred to it in the book of Matthew. Where all day long he stretched out his hand to an obstinate and stiff-necked people. And yes, it is so wonderful, the love of God, but it is so heartbreaking that not more people want to receive it. And as I read verses 1 and 2, I'm, I'm struck with Paul here emulating, demonstrating, speaking about a heart that he has for people. 
which is emulating and demonstrating God's heart for humanity. That's the point that I really wanted to make. Because if you remember what he was like before he was converted, you remember what Paul was like before he was converted. Basically, if you didn't agree with Paul, he wanted to hang you and hang you high. And he went around persecuting the church because they didn't agree with him. Kind of like a few Christians I know, but never mind. Uh, my last church, of course. But here, Paul has a broken heart because God, I believe, has a broken heart for the world. And I think often we, we forget that. We have God who has a broken heart, whose heart was so broken that he sent his only son that whosoever would believe on him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. God was motivated by his own broken heart because he so loves the world. And so he's telling us, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience. I, I, I started reading this about, I, I was, remember when we did that study in anthropology on Wednesday night? Um, you know, Calvary's Church bringing the seminary to you. But anyway, uh, this idea of a conscience. We didn't cover that. And it, it's, it's the Greek word, let's see if I can pronounce it without butchering it. The sonidesis. Oh, that's close enough. You probably don't know either one. Anyway, so nidesis is close to, to the Greek word, uh, pronunciation of the Greek word. It literally means conscience, okay? It literally means knowledge about something. Knowledge about something. Or it's that psychological fac faculty that we have where we distinguish between right and wrong. About moral sensitivity. In, in Romans chapter 2, Paul's already used the word back then. He says their consciences also show that these things are true since their thoughts sometimes accuse them and sometimes defend them. This place of the conscience that testifies with Paul in the Holy Spirit is that, that is the place, I believe, where the, where, where the Spirit of God begins to work on us and begins to speak on us, our sense of conscience, our understanding of right or wrong. You've seen the, the uh, well, maybe you haven't, uh, the, um, the old cartoons, the old cartoons, right? Where you got, some of you are already nodding your head because you know where I'm going to go. The devil's on one side and the angel's on the other. And, 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 uh, and the cartoon character has the choice of listening to one or the two. What's affecting his conscience? And uh, this is, again, this is the place where, where, where we, we, and I believe it's a part of the soul, although I'm, I'm not going to bet the farm. I wouldn't even bet half the farm on that, to be honest with you. But, but it's part of our, our, our being, part of our, our uh, what's called non-corporeal being, or, or, or not our physical being, but who we are spiritually, emotionally, um, mentally. And often in the, in the New Testament that the conscience is, is presented as, as, as the witness of the Holy Spirit in a person's heart. 
the witness of the Holy Spirit of a person's heart. So basically what Paul is saying to us here is that I've received the heart of the Holy Spirit. I've received his heart. I've understood his heart. Now, don't think receiving as in the same context of receiving Christ as Savior. But I've been given the heart of the Holy Spirit. I've, I've, I've communed with him. I've had time with the Holy Spirit. I've heard his heart through prayer, through scripture, through sometimes just being quiet and listening, being still and knowing that I am God. And no doubt, and if you read the history in the book of Acts of Paul, Paul really was a work in progress. He really was. And I was going to say, no doubt, it was something that the Holy Spirit was really working in his life to give him this heart for his countrymen. For people who did not agree with him. And respond to them with a heart of love rather than with a heart of, of anger and hate and, and, and disdain. Because the church that he persecuted was a mixture of Gentiles and Jews, by the way. It wasn't just Gentiles he went after. But God changed his heart. Because first and foremost, he was born again of the Spirit on the road to Damascus. And then he had that time where God really began to do a work in his life and really change him, that sanctifying work where he started to develop a heart for people in the same way that God has a heart for humanity. You know, I, I, I've, I've talked to Christians which is always an interesting thing to do. No, I'm kidding. But I've talked to Christians, and it's like, and I've listened to them talk about the world. You've heard that phrase, and it's the world, right? Oh, that's just so worldly. They're, they're, they're ungodly, you know. Thanks, Bill. Um, the world. And I've heard Christians talk about the world in such a way that I thank God, the creator of heaven and earth, that I don't stand before you on the judgment day. And that God is not like you on the judgment day because they're harsh and they're unforgiving and they're insensitive and they do not stop to realize that people in the world do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside them to guide them and to teach them and to instruct them and to conform them into the image of Christ. So no, no wonder they do the stupid things that they do. And we get, we get so indignant. We get so indignant, and yet the picture that God has given us is the picture in the parable, the story of the prodigal son, where God is like the father of the prodigal son, who the story gives the impression that the father went out there daily watching and waiting and hoping that his prodigal son would return. 
And he goes on. And, and to me, this fascinates me. And, 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 you know, I think of people that I know that I either do not believe they are in the faith or I am not convinced that they are in the faith. And, and, he, and he says, I, I could wish, verse 3, that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my countrymen, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, that used to really fascinate me. I mean, it still does, but uh, in a different way. I used to not understand at all why he would want to be a curse for the sake of anyone. And then, as I've gone through life, I know people that, again, people that I love very much, people that I, I don't know if they're in the faith or not, and, and I, I, I have begun to feel the same way. Now, I know that it is a theological impossibility. I understand that. Because then, essentially, what we were saying is that then Paul would have died for their sins, and it, that doesn't work, right? That doesn't work. Paul knew that. Paul knew that. Paul understood that. But nonetheless, he had a, he had a, a, um, a heart for these people that, that he was willing to trade place, places with them and, and, and take their punishment. That's how much he wanted to see them in the heaven with him. I remember a, a, a friend of mine, he, uh, he told me the story. His dad was a pastor. He was a prodigal. And he said the very last conversation, the very last words his dad ever said to him was he looked at him as he was leaving. You know, because after a while, you can only preach so much to people, and, and then they just, you know, they click you off, man. They don't listen. So you've got to get subtle. And he looked at his son, and he said to him, be there. And he walked, said, goodbye, son. And he walked away, and he never saw his, his dad passed away shortly after that. But he just looked, and now this is after sharing the gospel with him. This kid grew up in church. He knew the gospel, all right? But he just looked at him and said, be there. You know, in other words, get right with God, son. That's what he was saying. And, and for this man, and this was many years ago, right, this man to have told me that, that told me that that probably was the best sermon he ever preached to his kid. Just be there. Be in the kingdom. Be in the presence of God. I want to see you again. I don't want your name to be forgotten throughout all eternity. And it, when you really start to think about what separation from God really means, and you, if you really love people, I hope, I hope that you acquire the same heart that Paul had. Sorrowing and where he was in a place where um, unceasing grief and great sorrow. And, and as I think about this, have we ever seen this in the Bible before? Yes, we have. It's in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, and we're going to turn there and, and take a quick look at this this morning. In Exodus chapter 32, 
actually to really to really get the full story in this we really got to back up um, quite a bit and and I'm not going to take the time to do that well we'll back up at least I'm going to pull some verses out of Exodus 32 I'm going to begin with verse 1 now God has delivered the nation of Israel he's brought them to Sinai so he can establish and give the law which wrapped up in that was the 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 law of the covenant or the covenant of the law excuse me so he was going to make a covenant with them and therefore or thereby constitute the nation of Israel he's already referred to Israel as his firstborn as his son and he referred to that earlier in the book of Exodus he tells uh, Pharaoh that or he has Moses tell Pharaoh that but in in uh, the people are delivered from Egypt. They've already seen the incredible miracle of crossing the Red Sea, experienced that. And now they're at Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain. And he, uh, what happens first, just a little background. Essentially, they're at Sinai 50 days after the day that they left Egypt, which was the day, actually uh, 49, because the day before they left Egypt or the night that they were getting ready to leave Egypt turned into what? The first Passover, which commemorated the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt. So they leave Egypt the next morning. They go to Sinai. They get there. 50 days after that first Passover, which also happens to be the feast of Pentecost. So it's the place where the nation is constituted, where the nation is in covenant uh, under the law. And God declares the law verbally to the nation. It freaks everybody out. And what, remember this? What do they tell Moses? You go up on that mountain and you talk to him. We don't want to hear his voice anymore because if he keeps talking, we're, gonna, we're, we're scared to death as it is. We're just going to die. So get up there and deal with it. We'll, whatever he tells you to do, we'll do. Make sense? Okay. Personally, I would have liked to have heard a little bit more of the voice of God. That, that's just, to me, that just would have blown my mind. Probably would have made me scared to death too. So I can't fault them. Moses is up on the mountain for about 40 days. And it tells us in, this is where we pick up the story here in verse, 30, uh, verse uh, 1 of chapter 32. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain and the people gathered together to Aaron and they said to him, come, make us gods that we, that uh, shall go before us. I'm reading out of the New King James, by the way. Uh, for as for this Moses, now he's this Moses. Before he was the redeemer, he was the deliverer. Now he's this Moses. He's been up there too long. The man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And of course, they needed to not go up the mountain because that was like off limits to everybody. So Aaron said to them, see, this is where Aaron, this is where Aaron blew, he blew it big time. He should have been kicked out of the, the priesthood right here. But 
he had a great opportunity to lead the nation in a, in a place of, of faithfulness, and yet what happened? He says, well, break off all the golden earrings, which are on your ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which they had on their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. Now, how the, where did they get the golden earrings? This is just a side thing. Remember when they left Egypt, they basically took anything that they wanted from the Egyptians, and the Egyptians were all more the happy to give it to them, to get them out of there. So they, they took the spoils, because remember, they were, in Egypt, they were what? They were slaves. They didn't, they didn't have anything. So they took the spoils of their labors from Egypt, and, and they left. So uh, it says, and when Aaron received the gold, verse 4, from their hand, fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. And then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What in the world were they thinking? Okay, I didn't think so. Yeah, insanity. And so when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. Boy, he's really going overboard now. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Notice it says capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is the proper name of God, Yahweh. So now he is, he's going to take control over what God has already established, and he's going to write their own religious practices. Not a good idea, Aaron. And then they rose early in the next day and they offered burnt offerings and they brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go, get down for your people. Notice he said, whose people? Your people. Whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. I might have, well, I would have wanted to reminded God of the burning bush experience right here, right then. But I think Moses was probably smart to keep his mouth shut and just do what God told him. So they have, uh, they have, verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I've commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf, and they worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Indeed, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that, I, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make you a great nation. God is not happy. You know what's interesting about this? Because as I put myself in Moses' place and, and God said to me, Mike, leave him alone because I'm going to consume him and I'm going to make out of you a great nation. I said, great, I'll get back to you. Let me know when you're ready. Wouldn't have you? Wouldn't it have been tempting? But nonetheless, Moses pleads, verse 11, with the Lord his God. He says, Lord, why do you, does your wrath burn against your people? Notice he says, whose people? Your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand. 
And then he, he's trying to reason with God here. He says, why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath. Relent from this harm to your people. And then he gets biblical, gets theological. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. It says, so the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now that's a very difficult concept. Because of the promises, I don't think God was ever going to wipe them out. I think what happened here was that God made this statement to Moses because he was trying to draw from Moses the heart of God that had been established in his own soul. Does that make sense? He's trying to, he, he's putting this out here before Moses to see if Moses is going to pull an Aaron. Sure, let's just make the golden calf. And of course, you remember the story later on when Moses goes and confronts Aaron about it. He says, well, they handed me the gold and I threw it in the fire and out come this calf. I think he must have thought that Moses was oxygen deprived from being on the mountain too long. But I think in, 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 a very, in a strange way that I really don't understand well, I think what God was doing here is he was trying to draw the best out of Moses that he possibly could. Moses is wanting to intercede for his people. Let's move on as we, uh, uh, in this chapter, right around verse 30. It says, now it came to pass on the next day. So this is after Moses has come down the hill. And they have, uh, they've actually gone through and, and Moses has called those, those who were on the Lord's side come and stand with me. And they went and killed all those that were, that were basically um, involved in this uh, coup. Who's a good word? Notice Aaron was spared. Uh, those that were involved in this idolatrous practice because essentially what was going on when it said they rose up to play, it didn't mean they were rising up to play volleyball, folks. Okay? It, it, it's sexual in nature is what it's talking about. And so the next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I could make atonement for you. Perhaps I can make atonement for you. The Greek word, excuse me, the Hebrew word, been in the New Testament too long. The Hebrew word, kapar, literally means to cover. It is the word that is first used in the book of Genesis where God told Noah to cover the ark, kapar, cover the ark with pitch so that it would be waterproof. So this word uh, atonement is here. Uh, and 
follow my thinking on here as I go through this. And we're almost done, but follow my thinking a little bit. Now, I'm going to speculate a little bit. Your mileage may vary. It usually does with this group anyway, right? So Moses is saying, you've committed a great sin, and perhaps I can make atonement for you. Perhaps I can cover your sin. Now, this word atonement was already used three times uh, in Exodus 29, three times in Exodus 30. So it's in the context of what's happening here, and it's talking about bringing a sacrificial animal. All right? It's talking about bringing a sacrificial animal. It's talking about doing, offering the sacrifices in the way that God had prescribed to Israel while they were there on Sinai. All right? So he, he's within the realms biblically of where he is supposed to be, okay? He, he's not pulling things out of left field thinking that he's going to atone for the nation. But let's follow this, this, this exchange a little bit. Then Moses returned to the Lord, verse 31, and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now if you will forgive their sin... But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. See, now he's going to the same place. Excuse me. Paul went to the same place where Moses went in his heart. Follow my thinking. Moses comes up the mountain. He stands before God. Now, in the text, there's no mention of bringing a sacrificial animal here. Now, who was supposed to offer the sacrifice? Aaron, who basically struck out, was on the bench. Moses was Aaron's what? Brother. That means Moses was also what? A Levite, which means he could have brought the sacrifice. But there is no mention of an animal sacrifice here in this exchange between Moses and God. And I... And I there may have been more that had happened between Moses and God in this exchange than what is written. Okay, I realize I'm arguing from silence here. But as I read this, as I think about what Moses is asking, if Moses is saying to them, if, if you will not forgive their sins and blot me out of your book, which is referring to the book of life. We see that in Revelation chapter 20. If you will not forgive their book, uh, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Do you realize what he's asking God to do? Do you realize what he's attempting to do himself? He's attempting to identify with God's people even in their judgment. To me, this is difficult. This is harsh. And perhaps it was because for whatever reason he did not bring an animal, he was so exacerbated with not knowing what to do, but he said, okay, then fine, blot me out too. Ever, be, ever been at that place when you're in an argument with someone you're like, and you're trying to convince them, and finally you're just like, whatever, you know? And, and, and it was as if he was surrendering himself. Now, I think he understood that he could not die for the sins of the nation. I think he understood that. That makes sense? But I think he was truly heartbroken. 
Now remember, he didn't want to do this back in Exodus 4, right? Essentially, paraphrase, but essentially he basically told God to find somebody else. He didn't want to be the deliverer.